Our guest this evening is W.H. Brands. Dr. Brands holds graduate degrees in mathematics and history and has taught at Vanderbilt University and Texas A&M before joining the faculty at the University of Texas at Austin, where he holds the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair in History. Several of his books have been bestsellers, and two, Traitor to His Class and The First American, were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. For the past four years, he has been writing a history of the United States in haiku form and publishing it on Twitter. Uh, tonight, Dr. Brands will delve into the epic collision of wills that is the subject of his new book, The General and the President. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to W.H. Brands. Thank you, Will. Thank you for that kind introduction. Can everybody hear me okay? Um, I was particularly interested that you mentioned that I have been sending out a history of the United States. It's in haiku form, and it's over Twitter. And I feel as though I have come full circle in a couple of ways. Because I started this project years ago, uh, not long after Twitter was released to the world. And I had been telling my students for years that you can write the history of anything at any length you want. It's just a matter of detail. You write a history of the world in 800 words or 8 million words. It's just a matter of how much you're going to include. And you can write in various forms. And in fact, I was telling this particular class that I had a particular form that I advised them to use when they were writing a seminar paper for me. And it was uh, divided up into sections, and there was an introduction, and there were various sections within the body, and then there was a conclusion. And I said, I'm recommending that you do this. I'm not going to require that you do this because, well, as I think I said, you know, genius makes its own rules, and if you want to write it any way you want, if you want to, if you want to write it in haiku form, go ahead. And it was a throwaway line. Uh, but after I'd been throwing this away for a while, one of the students said, well, professor, have you ever written history in haiku? And I said, well, no, I haven't. But I had been thinking about the question of how do we writers, how do we teachers communicate with people in an age of changing media? So my students, for example, I have good students, very good students at the University of Texas. You have to be in the top 5% of your graduating class. In, in Texas to get into the University of Texas. But my students find it a challenge to read a book, a book that is longer than 200 pages. I mean, they just don't. They, they read lots of stuff, but they don't read that. So I've been, I've been thinking for some time, how do we deliver the stuff that we deliver? How do we deliver the content in form that's most comfortable for our readers? Because one of the things I tell my writing students is that writing is an act of communication. And if your students, your readers, just don't communicate on that wavelength, you're going to be wasting your time. So I had been thinking about using a short form like Twitter, and the student sort of challenged me to write it in haiku. And it turns out that the typical haiku fits very well into the 140 characters. Now, I started out in way back in prehistory, and I've been working up toward the present, but I had no idea that by the time I got to the president, that the president of the United States would be communicating via Twitter. So, in fact, I'm up to the 2016 campaign. And I've been at it for about five or six years now. And I had been trying to decide, well, where do I stop? But maybe I don't. Maybe I 
comment on the Twitter president via Twitter in haiku form. I just don't know. We will see. Anyway, the book that I'm speaking on this evening is a rather different genre from haiku, uh, but it's also a different genre than the books that I had been writing for some while before. In the mid-1990s, I had this idea that I was going to write a history of the United States, and it was going to be in multiple volumes. And I pitched the idea to a publisher. It was at a meeting of historians, and I pitched the idea to a publisher. I said, I get this idea for an American history in six volumes. And the publisher just looked at me and laughed and said, are you crazy? You know, nobody does that sort of thing. Nobody would buy a history of the United States in six volumes. You know, one volume is the most anybody's going to do. And he looked at me and he said, and I will be able to gauge by your reaction um, how old some of you are. Um, so he said, who do you think you are anyway? Will Durant? <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> anyway, for those of you who are too young to know about Will and Ariel Durant, they wrote this, uh, I don't know, what was it, 1923 volume history of the world called The Story of Civilization. How many? Eleven. It was just 11? It seemed longer. Anyway. <laughs> so, anyway, so I was going to write this six-volume history of the United States. And the reaction that I got from the publisher put me off because I was relatively new at this game. And I thought, well, okay, he probably knows what he's talking about. But I, just, I, thought, it was, I thought it was a good idea. First of all, American history is a big story. And secondly... I had been using textbooks enough to know that the standard textbook of American history is this committee job where you get four or five or six or eight authors, and each author contributes his or her particular chronological specialty, which is okay. You get, you get a lot of expertise on your subject, but it does read like, it almost reads like um, a national party's uh, platform, you know, where everybody gets to contribute this or that, or some president's State of the Union addresses, where the State Department writes three paragraphs and the Defense Department writes and all this other stuff. So it doesn't hold together. You don't get that sense that you did with the Durants of this single guide carrying through this big, long story. So I decided I was going to write this anyway. And I simply wasn't going to tell anybody that I was doing it. I wasn't going to call it a history of the United States in six volumes. I was going to write a series of biographies. And so I did. I started out and I wrote a biography of Theodore Roosevelt. This was not going to be the first, this wasn't going to be volume one, but I thought I'd start with somebody, well, frankly, that I could get a publisher to buy my biography of Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt is arguably sort of the most interesting, compelling, colorful individual in, we'll call it American public history. There might be private individuals who are more colorful. Occupying a public space, Theodore Roosevelt is the one. So I started with that. And the book was well-received, so I thought, okay, I, I like writing biographies, and at least the readers and the reviewers seem to like this one, so I'll try again. And I, so then I chose to write on the next most interesting character in all of American history. Can you guess who it was? Benjamin Franklin, precisely. So I thought, okay, after Theodore Roosevelt. And, but then I started getting into this idea of I was going to structure these biographies so they would add up to my six-volume history of the United States. And Franklin became volume one. And the title of the Franklin book conveys the idea that I was trying to get across, that with each generation that I was basically profiling through the life of one individual, there was a fundamental, I'll call it a thought to myself, the fundamental task of American history during that generation. And the book on Franklin is called The First American. 
And it's called the first American because Benjamin Franklin, like others of his generation, was born an Englishman and died an American. And the, the task of American history was forming this American identity. How did this happen? And then the second volume, volume two, was on Andrew Jackson. And here the story is the emergence of democracy. When Andrew Jackson was born in 1767, democracy was a swear word in politics. By the time he died in 1845, it was the way we Americans had determined we were going to run our politics. My book on Ulysses Grant was volume three. It's called The Man Who Saved the Union. And here the central task of American history is to figure out whether the union is going to hold together. And Ulysses Grant holds it together during the war and does so again during Reconstruction. There, in that one, there was also a secondary story. And the story is how this is a country shaped by war. And you know, the biggest war in American history is the Civil War. And how did that happen? How did it come about? How did the country survive the war? But also, there's sort of an underlying theme that comes out of this. And this is something that I've reflected on in my studies of history. And that is that war is easy, peace is hard. Or to put it another way, war is easy, politics is hard. If you think about sort of the, the big thing that happened during the Civil War, the Union held together, but there was something else. There was a problem that, the, that our political system could not resolve during peacetime. And that was, how do you fit slavery into a democratic republic? And for 85 years, it was something that defied the ability of the American political system to manage. And then in just a year and a half after the war, Lincoln was able to swing the sword that cut the Gordian knot and ended slavery. So, and then Ulysses Grant discovers that trouble starts once again as soon as the war ends. Politics resumes, war ends. Volume four turned out to be the Theodore Roosevelt. And the story there is industrialization and the response to industrialization. With Franklin Roosevelt, it's about the Great Depression the New Deal, World War II. And volume six, the last one, was on Ronald Reagan. By the time I finished with Reagan, I had decided that I had done enough with biography for the time being. I'm not going to say I'm never going to do another biography. But I had had enough of biography, and especially presidential biography, for two reasons. And when I started, I did not think, I did not know, that five of the six subjects that I wrote about were going to be presidents. It turns out, though, that if you're going to write a history of the United States in the form of biographies, presidents are really handy people to hang a particular part of the story on because presidents occupy sort of the middle of things. If I wrote about Walt Whitman during the era of the Civil War, in the middle of the 19th century, I can say interesting things I presume about Walt Whitman, but you can't go very far away from Walt Whitman and you've wandered off the sort of the, the main story. With Walt Whitman, you can't write about the sectional crisis without really straining the patience and the sort of plausibility of the story. So I wrote about presidents, and I wrote these biographies. And by the time I was done, I decided that I was contributing to some, uh, a serious, I'm going to say flaw, or a serious problem that we have in our political system. And I'm not going to say that it's exactly the problem that gave rise to the current president. But it sort of contributes to what I call, not entirely original in this, the cult of the presidency. And when you write a biography, you can conceive the biography, as I did, as really 
sort of a life and times of the United States and not just of your individual. When you write a biography, you cannot help but write as though the world revolves around your subject because your subject is pretty much on every page. If you get two or three pages without talking about your subject, then the readers wonder, where am I going with this? And your subject can be the President of the United States, who's probably the closest approximation to someone around whom the world resolves in the last hundred years or so, but the world does not revolve around the President of the United States. The world doesn't revolve around anybody. And so I wanted to get a little bit away from the biography part because, well, we see it every four years when there's the big buildup in the media and everybody who's paying political attention is focusing on the presidential election. And president, presidential candidates act as though and voters respond as though if we simply install the right person in the White House, then all of our problems will go away. And they, we elect somebody, and they don't. There is this great hope when the person is elected, and there is this great disillusionment that sets in afterward. And this is true whether the person you elect is Barack Obama, who was elected with the highest hopes on the part of his followers in 2008, and the great disillusionment set in afterwards when it turned out the world didn't change by electing Barack Obama. And now we've seen it with President Trump, and his supporters came in and hoped that the swamp was going to be drained, and the wall was going to be built, and all this other stuff is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. Our political system is much bigger than any individual. But I was inadvertently contributing to this idea that presidents is what we ought to focus on. The second thing was, and the second sort of drawback of biographies generally, not just presidents, is reflected in, why well, I became aware of it when I heard a story about the sort of the mystery and uh, crime writer Elmore Leonard, who died a few years ago. And some of you will have read his books. He, um, he would write a first draft of one of his novels, and he would hand the draft to his wife, who was his first reader. And every author has or should have the first reader. Who's the first person to look at? And his wife would read the manuscript, and she would hand it back to him every time with the same advice scrawled on page one. And it, the, the advice was, get rid of the boring stuff, <laughs> which I tell my writing students is very good advice. You know, write as long as you want, then go back and get rid of the boring stuff. Now, when you write a biography, it's not so easy to get rid of the boring stuff. Because if you've committed to a full life, your subject has to be born, you know, grow up, be an adult, do all this stuff, and eventually die. And there are moments in the life, there are periods in the life, there can be decades in the life where things are kind of boring. But you've committed, and you kind of have to report on it. If it happened, you have to report it. So I decided I was going to write something that was other than a biography, so I could get away from, leave aside the boring stuff. And I was going to write about somebody other than a president. Well, I got halfway there. So I decided to write, not about one person, but about two people. Now... This has the advantage that the world doesn't revolve around one person anymore. Maybe this is kind of like a binary star where the world revolves around two people. Eh, sort of. But the other thing is that it allowed me, or I chose to, focus on the least boring part of the lives of these two men. So the two men are Douglas MacArthur and Harry Truman. The book is called The General versus the President. In fact, the book 
Now, originally, it had a different title. I conceived it as the, the title of the book was going to be The Siege of the Waldorf. Okay, see, that's the reaction I wanted, but I didn't get from my editor. Because of the Siege of the Waldorf, that's kind of intriguing. What's this about? Well, it was going to be the story that I tell in the book, which is about Harry Truman and Douglas MacArthur and the squabble, the fight they got in, the constitutional battle they got in, in the middle of the Korean War that ended, and I don't think I'm giving away anything that you don't know, with the firing of Douglas MacArthur. But I imagine this story being told from MacArthur's perspective, looking backwards from his room. He retired to the Waldorf Astoria in New York. He had this habit of living in hotels. He liked to live in hotels, and he lived the last decade and dozen years of his life in the Waldorf Astoria. And I imagine this old man looking down on the world from the windows of his suite and seeing the world sort of change before his eyes and seeing the world slowly forget him. And they can't recall why he was such a great man. And the story was all going to be told in retrospect. Well, I couldn't quite get my editor to go along with that. So then I decided I was going to call the general, the general and the president. And that seemed natural enough. And, and then the subtitle was going to be, is, still is, MacArthur and Truman at the brink of nuclear war. And I'll get to the brink of nuclear war in a moment. But when the book was about to be published, the last thing, the last thing that's really nailed down, surprisingly, is the title of the book. And the book, I wrote it, and the editor edited it, went through production. Finally, the folks in marketing took a last look at it. They're thinking about the cover, and they say, you know, can you change that and to a versus? Because then that demonstrates it builds in the conflict, and people know, boom, just like that. And I have to say that at first, I was kind of skeptical, but then I liked the way it turned out. And I will say this, that the point of a title, the point of a title is to get people to pull the book off the shelf at the bookstore and to look inside. And it's to get book review editors to say, huh, okay, this is worth reviewing. And I think it worked in that regard. So the business about the brink of nuclear war. I'm gonna, now I'm going to tell you a little bit about sort of why I chose this particular subject rather than any other thing of the same form. I'm not quite old enough to remember the Korean War. So I was born in 1953. My first encounter of the Korean War came when I was in school. And I suppose I heard of the Korean War maybe when I was in elementary school. But I know that my first sort of serious exposure to it was when I was in 11th grade. So this was in the 1960s, and I had a really good U.S. history teacher. And my history teacher was a fan of Harry Truman and a critic of Douglas MacArthur. And we talked about the Korean War, and we learned, in this class, we learned what I could call sort of the first draft, the first cut of history at this particular story, which is basically that we've got a president, who is trying to figure out how to keep the war in Korea contained. We have a general who is trying to figure out how to expand the war in Korea. We have a president who has concluded that American policy in the Cold War should be focused on avoiding World War III. It's based on the philosophy that's summarized in the word containment. 
the label given to Truman's policy. And the basic idea of the policy was that the United States and democracy will defeat communism without having to fight it openly. If communism can simply be contained, communism will implode under its own internal contradictions. So, this predisposes Harry Truman to say when war breaks out in Korea, we want to keep communism from expanding, but we don't want to get into a direct battle with the major communist powers. Douglas MacArthur, on the other hand, was one who approached the Cold War as essentially the beginning of World War III. MacArthur had been through two world wars and conducted himself with great distinction and gallantry. In World War I, he, were, he won pretty much every medal that the United States could offer and several that the French could give. In World War II, he won a Medal of Honor. He was sort of the hero of the Pacific War. And he looked at the conflict in the Cold War as an extension or a potential completion of the conflict that had been involved in World Wars I and II. Autocracy, a democracy against autocracy in World War I, against fascism in World War II, and now against communism. So the United States finally has to clear the deck of all the authoritarians and autocrats and dictators in the 20th century. And he believed that as soon as fighting began in Korea, the first time the Cold War got hot, when bullets started flying and American soldiers were under fire, this was the opening phase of World War III. MacArthur eventually would articulate this view when he said, in war there is no substitute for victory. His was the thinking that you're either at war or you're not. And if you're not at war, that's fine. But once you do go to war, the politicians, the diplomats need to get out of the way, and the generals and the soldiers need to fight it. For MacArthur, the model war, and I should add that for most Americans of his generation, the model war, the ideal war, what Americans, some Americans still call the good war, was World War II. So the United States is at peace until December 7, 1941. And then, bam, the United States goes to war because the United States has been attacked. And in three and a half years, the United States geared up to build the most powerful military machine the world had ever seen. And it smashed to smithereens its foes. And the war ends in August 1945, and everybody goes home and goes back to doing what they were doing before. That's the model. That was what Americans in the late 1940s, early 1950s, thought of when they thought of a war. And this war in Korea was something that didn't quite match that mold. MacArthur believed it should. And MacArthur was willing to take the risks that it might come that way. So that's sort of the background story. That's the thing that I learned when I was in high school. I got a second sort of cut at the Korean War when I entered graduate school. And this was in 1981. And I was doing a seminar paper on roughly this period of the Cold War. It wasn't focused directly on the Korean War. It was actually focused on U.S. relations with Britain in the early period of the Cold War. And I, as I was studying this, I learned some more about the Korean War and especially about the impact of the Korean War on U.S. British relations, and in particular, on a moment at the very, uh, near the end of 1950, when the President of the United States, Harry Truman, gave a press conference. 
This is six, six months into the Korean War, and it's a month after China has entered the war. At a time when, well, Harry Truman's still trying to contain the Korean War, where Douglas MacArthur is trying to expand the Korean War to get the President of the United States to realize World War III has begun and we need to fight it. And we need to fight it not with one hand tied behind the back. We're going to go. We're going to fight this war. There is no substitute for victory. And Harry Truman has been assured by Douglas MacArthur that the war in Korea is about to come to a successful conclusion. Very briefly, a reminder of how it went. It began in June of 1950 with a surprise attack by North Korea on South Korea. Surprised Douglas MacArthur, commander of American forces in the Far East. Surprised Harry Truman, surprised everybody. The North Koreans overran Seoul, the capital of South Korea, in 24 hours. And South Korean forces um, began to retreat. It looked as though they were going to be driven off the peninsula. Harry Truman had to make a decision. What are you going to do about this? Should you simply let South Korea be defeated? North Korea is communist. South Korea is not communist. But neither the Soviet Union nor the United States had made a big deal of their half of the peninsula. But Harry Truman decided that he could not allow South Korea to be overrun by the communists. China had just been taken over by the communists. And Truman was under serious political attack in the United States for having lost China. That was the phrase. And if he turns around six months later and loses South Korea, then it's going to appear that communism was on a roll. In fact, it's worth a reminder, and it's, this is really important to try to go back to a time around 1950, when it looked as though communism might actually win in this contest with democracy. If you imagine, if you reimagine what had happened over the previous 30 years, in 1917, communism took control of the largest country in the world geographically, the Soviet Union. And in 1949, communism captures the largest country in the world by population, China. And much of the world in Africa, in Asia, is, is, gonna, is in the process of being decolonized. It's going to choose between these two systems, democracy or communism. And if you were the leader of an African country, if you were the leader of an Asian country about to become independent, which would you choose? So it was very important for Truman to demonstrate that democracy could defend itself. So Truman did something that six months earlier he never would have imagined that he could do. Harry Truman is the last president of the United States not to have a college degree. But, but because of this, he believed that it was necessary to read every history book he could ever lay his hands on. He might be the most literate president we've ever had in terms of history. He read and read and read in history, and he certainly knew that the Constitution of the United States says that it is Congress that declares war. Presidents before Harry Truman had never embarked on wars for this country simply on their own authority, but Harry Truman did. And he did this because... Well, if he didn't, if he didn't do something, if he didn't throw American troops into the battle within days, then South Korea would be lost. And Harry Truman had no intention of, had no idea that he was setting a precedent that would reign to the present. So the United States has been to war several times since 1950, but never with a formally declared war. But he felt he had to do it. For the first three months of the war, the war goes very badly for the United States and the South Korean side. Then Douglas MacArthur, has a brilliant idea. It is going to be the pièce de résistance of his military career. It is an end run around the North Korean lines. So bold, so daring, 
that everybody on the American side, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all the top officials, think that is ludicrously dangerous, but no one is willing to tell MacArthur he can't do it because they know that MacArthur has cultivated the media. And if the Pentagon says no to Douglas MacArthur, he will leak that I had this great idea to win the war and they wouldn't let me do it. So, and so you could read the memos where they're talking to each other. They say, well, just give him enough rope to hang himself. You know, and so if he, if it goes badly, they, they basically made sure that he was on record as saying, this is my responsibility. Well, it was the most brilliant maneuver of his long career. He's 70 years old at this point. He's next, he's just about to retire. And the counteroffensive at Incheon takes the communists by surprise and turns the war upside down within six hours. And so the American side, the South Koreans, are about to be driven off the peninsula. Now, all of a sudden, they capture half of the North Korean army, and the rest of the North Korean army flees to the north. At this point, at this point, Harry Truman could have said, nice going, Doug, war's over, let's all go home. But Harry Truman got greedy. And he decided, you know what, I could do something that no president has ever done. I could liberate a communist regime. So I can let MacArthur go into North Korea and we will capture North Korea for democracy. Democracy is a little bit of an exaggeration. South Korea wasn't democratic, really, but at least it was not communist. So he lets MacArthur go north, at which point the situation gets more complicated because China, North Korea's next-door neighbor and sponsor, communist country, has kept out of the fight until this point. But as American forces go north, approaching the North Korean border with China, as American forces are getting closer to China, the Chinese government drops heavy hints that if American forces get too close to the border, China is going to enter the war. MacArthur doesn't believe it. Harry Truman doesn't believe it. But Truman wants to get MacArthur on record. And so Truman flies 7,000 miles out to the Pacific to meet MacArthur at Wake Island. MacArthur, usually it's the general who's flown to Washington, but MacArthur refuses to come to Washington. So Truman goes all the way out there and he has a meeting. Where he, which he surreptitiously records. And he asks MacArthur, will China enter the war? And MacArthur says, absolutely not. They wouldn't dare. And if they do, I will annihilate them. So three weeks later, China enters the war. And far from MacArthur annihilating the Chinese, it's much closer to the Chinese annihilating MacArthur's troops. It's at this point that Harry Truman holds his press conference. This is the one that I encountered when I was in graduate school. And at the press conference, he is asked, so, Mr. President, what weapons are under consideration for use in Korea to deal with this war we're now fighting against China? And Truman, priding himself on not micromanaging, and he also is one who likes to sort of speak, he, he really appreciated the reputation he had as plain-speaking Harry. Now, I have to say that this was in the days before presidential press conferences, and they were press conferences, were not recorded. And in fact, they were all given on background, so the presidents could not be quoted without their permission. So he wanted to say that, he wanted to say that, uh, you know, I'm not going to be the one making the decision, that, that 
And furthermore, he couldn't say that, okay, well, you know, we're not going to use atomic weapons because he had to keep the other side at least guessing that maybe they would. So he said, all the weapons in our arsenal are under consideration. And the reporters, they're thinking about this, and they say, well, does that mean the atom bomb, too? And the, and Truman says, uh, yeah, that means the atom bomb. And they said, well, is this a change of policy? No, no. No, no, we've been considering all our weapons since the beginning of the war. Now, he's trying, actually, to be as bland as can be, not saying yes, not saying no. But reporters get this, and they say that the president is considering the use of the atom bomb. And, in fact, they go so far as to say, can we quote you on this? And he says, yeah. And then the question comes, okay, Mr. President, so who's going to make the decision about the use of the bomb? And Truman says, again, not wanting to micromanage, he says that decision will be left to the commander in the field. Well... Truman was not really up on the legislation. The, the President of the United States is the only one who can make that decision. But when reporters heard that the commander in the field, this is Douglas MacArthur, this is the one who's been agitating for broadening the war. So this flashes out over the wire services. And Clement Attlee, the British Prime Minister, is speaking before the House of Commons. And he hears this sort of rumble in the back of the House, where the word has just arrived that the President of the United States has threatened the use of the atom bomb against China. And the decision on this is going to be with that madman, Douglas MacArthur. And I use the terminology in, with which MacArthur was viewed and described by Attlee's Labor Party. So Attlee faces this mutiny among the party. Basically, they insist, we're getting out of NATO if the Americans are going to persist in this policy, or you're going to have to do something about it. So on the fly, he says, I'm going to go to America. And he, the, the subtext is, and I'm going to talk some sense into those crazy Americans. So off he goes. And this is sort of the only really sort of snap summit that I can think of. And Attlee goes, and he has his conference. Well, anyway, the, the problems persist, and finally, MacArthur is fired, because MacArthur's position continues to diverge from that of Harry Truman. So in the second go-around, when I was looking at this in 19, the early 1980s, I was able to see a lot more than anybody had been able to see in 1967 when I first encountered it. This because a lot of materials that were classified originally for security reasons and were still classified in the 1960s had come open. So in the 1980s, when I was doing this research paper, I could read memos uh, within the National Security Council and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and... and see all this other stuff going. And so I, I knew a lot more of what was going into the decision-making. But there was a part of the story, there was a part of the story that I still couldn't figure out. And it had to do with what happened after MacArthur came home. So MacArthur is fired by Harry Truman. And he comes home to ticker tape parades on both coasts. He is invited to give a speech to a joint session of Congress. And some of you perhaps, maybe, uh, heard it over the radio. If you didn't then, you can go on YouTube and you can watch it because it was in the early days of television. You can listen to it. And it is one of the most effective speeches I have ever seen. MacArthur had Congress cheering him when they were supposed to be cheering. They were laughing at his jokes. They were crying with him. And when he said in the closing line that at the end of a long career in the military service of my country, I'm reminded 
of one of those old barracks room ballads where it says old soldiers never die. They just fade away. There was not a dry eye in the House of Representatives by the time he got finished. And if the Republican National Committee, uh, National Convention, had been meeting at that point, Douglas MacArthur would have been nominated by acclamation for the Republican nomination for president, which is exactly what he had in mind, because even as he said old soldiers never die, they just fade away, he had no intention of fading away. In fact, he went from there out on the campaign trail, and he campaigned in uniform against his commander-in-chief. But something strange happened. As I say, if the nomination could have been made at that moment, he would have been swept up the way William Jennings Bryan was swept up by the Democrats in 1896 on the strength of a very powerful speech. But shortly after he got out of there, he went out on the campaign trail, and the, the following that he expected, the people who were going to be behind him, one by one, they began to peel off. And his campaign for president just fizzled. And as I was trying to piece this together in 1981, I could not quite figure out what happened. Because nobody had any particularly good explanation. The best they could come up with was, well, there was this other general who made himself available. And that was Dwight Eisenhower. But that's a little bit later, because MacArthur's following begins to abandon him along in the middle of 1951, and Eisenhower doesn't get in the race until the beginning of 1952. So I filed this away. Well, this is interesting. This is kind of puzzling. But I had this mental image. Some of you will remember the story about how the planet Neptune was discovered. Astronomers were looking at the orbits of the planets just inside Neptune, and they realized that the planets weren't exactly where they were supposed to be when they were supposed to be there. It was though there were these wobbles in the orbits. And they inferred from this that there was some massive object, some dark massive object that they hadn't seen that was causing the wobble in the orbits. And when they looked at this more closely, they said, okay, well, it must be over there. And they went and looked for it, and they found it. So from 1981 until fairly recently, I had in this back of my mind that there's this Neptune out there somewhere that is going to explain the weird behavior of MacArthur's following and basically explain the fizzling of his political campaign. So when I took up this project in 2014, I'm going to find that Neptune. And I can tell you, I found the Neptune. Now, I've actually run out of time. So, <laughs> copies of the book are available for sale. Thank you all for coming.